Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. And I'm Calvin. And I'm Pat. And we're three rapidly aging men who love Doctor Who and try our best to love the new series, too. We'll take you through five rounds, wrap it, and get to the bottom of what's great and not so great about our favorite show. And as always, we start with round one, Temporal Grace, something that makes us just very happy right now in the world of Doctor Who. Pat? You guys, I've got two for today. What? I've got two temporal graces. One that I had in mind and one that I just learned about literally while we were sitting here at my dining room table and I was checking Facebook. <laughs> you egomaniacal bastard. <laughs> right. uh, so first I want to, uh, this isn't something that makes me happy, but it's something I think that should be recognized. I want to uh, mention the death of actor Gareth Thomas, who yeah. us mm. uh, British sci-fi nerds of a certain age know uh, always as Blake from Blake mm -hmm. 7. I've seen him in a number of other things over the years. He was primarily a stage actor, but you see him in things like uh, the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there's uh, a lot to be said about Gareth Thomas. He seemed to be like a very pleasant guy. He was a working actor for many, many decades. And there was a period there in the 70s when Blake 7 was on the air where it was... It nearly occurred that there was a Blake 7 Doctor Who crossover. I don't think it even got as far as the planning stages, but it was being seriously discussed, of course, because Terry Nation had created the Daleks for Doctor Who, and he uh, was the guy who had created Blake 7, and also Christopher Boucher, who had written for Doctor Who, was the script editor on Blake 7. And the way I heard it, Gareth Thomas and Tom Baker used to hang out and get drunk all the time in pubs. <laughs> of course they did. So they, they hatched the idea that there would be a Daleks or Doctor Who crossover. There's uh, At the end of season two of Blake 7, the universe is, or the galaxy is being invaded by an alien race, and there was some talk at some point that that race would have been the Daleks. So... Sorry to hear about Gareth Thomas, who I hadn't seen around for a while. I know he's been doing big finished stuff. He even reprised his role as Blake for a while. Uh, but I'm sorry to see him go. Mm. And uh, in happier news, uh, I just saw through my Facebook feed that there is another Doctor Who board game coming out. We had Brian Schomburg on um, a short time ago that was talking about the... Uh, adventure board game that's going to come out sometime later this year. But I guess there's a, another one by uh, Jeff Tidball, who used to... Uh, work at Fantasy Flight Games, although after my time there, and uh, is currently at Atlas Games. He's a very good designer. Designed a game called Horus Heresy that um, is set in the Warhammer universe that people uh, like quite a bit. Anyway, this game is called um, Doctor Who Time Clash, and it's being published by Cubicle 7, the same people who do the RPG. And uh, apparently there's a demo of it, uh, probably yesterday, for those of you listening, <laughs> uh, April 30th, which is... Uh, National Tabletop Day here at the at the source in um, in the Twin Cities, but uh, well, you missed that. But at some point later this year, <laughs> I guess the card game's going to come out. So uh, congratulations to Jeff for doing what I'm sure is going to be a terrific game. You know, well, my thing is uh, just recently, um, both David Tennant and Matt Smith were at uh, Wizard World New York, and they did a panel together. Someone asked them who they 
would have liked to have seen portray the Doctor. Matt Smith picked Peter Sellers, <laughs> which I can kind of see. It depends on which Peter Sellers you're getting, I suppose. The Fu Manchu <laughs> Peter Sellers. Like, yes. like, like he, you know, he is kind of a Time Lord anyway. But uh, David Tennant had an interesting choice. And I, I just... Who do you think David Tennant picked? I'm just... Give us a, a, a he, 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 Okay, Here, here's a hint. It's an American. Hmm. I'll be utterly bamboozled if you get it. <laughs> because... <laughs> Clark <I'm>... Gable. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. No, no. Um, uh, here's another hint. Uh, he's he's living in a, a contemporary actor and doing stuff. Uh, Dick Van Dyke's still alive, and he does. <laughs> okay. Step off. He is Dick. okay. <laughs> Technically alive. Okay. Yes. Oh dang. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dick Van Dyke. Wow. <laughs> We're gonna have to put a pin in this and discuss this later. Calvin. Yes. Yes. But but uh, he's an American actor, primarily known for television. Well, they're all they're all British on television these days. Um, uh, okay, okay. Brian, Brian Cranston. Very interesting. But uh, <laughs> what what uh, David Tennant picked was Bradley Whitford oh, from The West Wing. From The West Wing. Okay. And uh, okay, I, I I have never seen two minutes of The West Wing because there aren't any uh, spaceships and explosions in it. <laughs> but um, everyone tells me it's great. And it's great. Apparently, David Tennant was a big fan of the West Wing and really could picture Bradley Whitford as a Doctor character. And I guess there's another character in the West Wing, and, and he, he described the rapport as kind of Doctor and companion-like. Yeah, I can see that. I don't remember. I don't know enough of it to know who he's referring to. Yeah. But there is a lot of the uh, long, long lots of exposition woman. while walking around. <laughs> yeah, he was also in Cabin in the Woods. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that would be a very unpleasant doctor if he was playing <laughs> that character. But, but I get it, you know, he can react to extreme circumstances with a sort of inflappable demeanor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just struck by that. It's like, that's a really unique choice. You're a bastard for the way you're treated, <laughs> Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> you really are. What about you, Josh? I was recently getting caught up and watching some episodes of Blacklist, which I greatly enjoy. Mm-hmm. And there was a Doctor Who reference. Ooh, what was it? I watched Blacklist. that show. I'm usually really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I went past you. But the tech guy, the IT nerdy guy, mm-hmm. uh, tries to get the woman he likes to come over. And he said, oh, I just downloaded season four of Doctor Who. Right. Tom Baker is great. Oh, yeah, that did stand yeah, out. Right? And so oh. in that moment, uh, I, no. I, I was watching with Adrian, so I, I paused it. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to correct and this. And I turned scare, to Adrian but... and I went, you know, that's utterly wrong, right? I said, there's no world in which... There's a season four of Doctor Who, not the classic series, not the new series, in which Tom Baker appears. And I very emphatically had to inform Adrian of this, and she said, Yo, can we keep watching? <laughs> <laughs> but see, I tried to couch this outrage in, in what I realized is this default thing where I go into like a fake outraged nerd mm-hmm. kind of voice and tone, and, and it was that moment where I realized that it was a mask to hide an outraged nerd. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've read fan theories on the internet that suggest that writers' rooms just sometimes deliberately put in outlandish outlandish mistakes like that, specifically in order to piss off subgroups. And I can believe it, too. If you ever watch a show like NCIS, they'll talk about all of the different sort of computer technology. There's a famous clip, maybe we'll link to it in the show notes, of just 
Tim McGee uh, walking into some girl's apartment and being so incredibly imp impressed by the ridiculous banks of absolute nonsense machinery <laughs> that are everywhere and going off at great length about it, which spawned you know, billions of people on the internet collectively losing their IT minds. <laughs> so yeah, I think maybe the Blacklist writers are like, they gotta... Well, we'll see if there are future digs at Doctor Who. Oh, Peter Cushing is my favorite TV doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and now for round two. Now, because this is going to be an episode almost entirely focused on the first Doctor story, The Daleks' Master Plan, two of our five rounds are going to be randomizer rounds this time. Same story, we're just cutting the uh, Daleks' Master Plan discussion into two parts to you know, stretch out a little bit here. So for the first part of our discussion about Daleks' Master Plan, I watched it. <laughs> I liked it. What about you guys? That's all I gotta say. That's I... all. <laughs> now for round three. <laughs> Our shortest podcast ever, but uh, I largely liked it. It was. Uh, it kind of struck me as a, a way to kind of redo the chase. Oh yeah. Only maybe not quite so silly, although it certainly has a couple points of pretty extreme silliness in it. Yeah, you've got two horrific pseudo companion deaths. Yeah. That are really brutal, mm -hmm. but then you've also got, you know, wacky silent film scenes. You've got <laughs> Bing Crosby dressed as a clown in there somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, don't ever remember that until this uh, listen through, and I'm like, what? Well, let's do yeah. this in sort of a chronological way. Let's the, do the first six. Yeah. Mission the, to the Unknown plus the first six episodes. Yeah, because the arc of the 13 episodes is a little bit funky, and it's mm -hmm. it's unusual for Doctor Who. In fact, it's unique for Doctor Who. It's the longest Doctor Who adventure if you don't count Trial of a Time Lord as one single adventure. Which I don't. And I never have. Yeah. Myself. All right. Good, we're all agreed. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to fight about that. <laughs> but it's interesting, too, that, uh, of course, Mission to the Unknown, which functions as the prologue to the story, doesn't have the Doctor or any companions in it. It has the Daleks, and it's a bleak little tragic story mark cory and his and his companions get trapped on the planet and systematically killed by the daleks and that's it that's what happens this is a children's show from 1965 um and then you're expected to wait five weeks uh, because the four part the myth makers uh, appeared in the meantime uh, before you get back to the main story and Mission to the Unknown then is, it's largely superfluous. There isn't a lot of, you don't have, all of the stuff that's established in it is established again later when the Doctor arrives on the planet. They even repeat, they've got two agents again on the planet. Yeah, there's no reason that it couldn't have been Mark Corey instead of Brett Vion. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that Corey leaves behind is the recording that the Daleks are going to invade the universe. But there's not really any material on that that's of interest to anyone once the Doctor comes and discovers... That the Daleks are there and going to invade the universe. Yeah. <laughs> As a self-contained story unit, I admire the, the bleakness of it. Everybody dies, mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of a pattern that continues through the rest of the story. But uh, as far as its narrative function, it doesn't really serve any. One of the difficulties with watching Daleks' Master Plan, and I don't know how you guys did it... Um, but of course, half of it doesn't. More than half of it doesn't yeah. exist, including Mission to the Unknown. So you're you're reliant on reconstructions. In my case, I kind of cycled through a number of different 
people's reconstruction, so the quality of the episodes I was watching varied significantly until I finally settled on the Loose Cannon guys who have mm-hmm. been doing mm-hmm. uh, doing this since, I think, the 90s. They've been doing these photo uh, and stills reproductions, and those are by far the, the best ones that I found, uh, except for Mission to the Unknown, which has a really fine animated version out there. It doesn't rise to the level of some of the professionally animated stuff that we've seen on the DVDs, but it's pretty good. And I wish I could remember off the top of my head who was responsible for it, but it's the only one out there on YouTube, so I expect people can probably find it. We should talk a little about Brett Bion, and since this is one of the reasons that inspired us to talk about this, is to see Nicholas Courtney mm-hmm. in a kind of proto-brigadier role. There are moments where he's arguing with the first Doctor, and especially because it's in one of the existing episodes, so you visually see them uh, yelling at each other and telling each other to shut up, and I go, <laughs> this could be a, a brigadier-doctor interaction. Absolutely. Yeah, my wife Carrie likes Nicholas Courtney so much that she was developing this elaborate headcanon where the <laughs> Time Lords rescue Brett Vion at the moment of his death and then they send him back into time without his memories to Earth because they know the Doctor will need somebody to help him out and they eventually exile him there. And I, I'm willing to go with that. Yeah. It's also just weird seeing Nicholas, Nicholas Courtney that young. It's only like five years before he really plays the Brigadier like a lot. He still looks like a baby. <laughs> you know, just like, the lack of mustache. Yeah, the lack of mustache, maybe. <laughs> but what I've never understood uh, and confused me on my initial listening uh, to this is the whole Brett Vion brother of Sarah Kingdom. They made that up as they went along, I'm sure yeah. that they did. There's just the one line, he's my brother, and yeah. then it's never spoken of again. Jean Marsh is, is sort of ill-served with her character here. I like Jean Marsh a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched all of Upstairs, Downstairs. Thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, and I like Sarah Kingdom. I think she's an early example of a tough woman in Doctor Who. And oh, yeah. She's close to the first. The only prior examples I can think of are those um, ladies from Galaxy 4. Uh, yeah. But otherwise you get kind of wimpy thal women and stuff. So uh, she's very early on the kind of Leela character. But she comes off like a heartless killing machine at first, then goes to pieces almost immediately in episode five after she is, has killed her brother and is away on the planet. And then she's inconsistently competent and girly throughout the rest yep. of the story. So I wish they could have settled on a character for her. And she's game. She'll mm-hmm. she'll play whatever the script uh, is demanding and she'll do it well, but it's odd. I think it's one of those problems where you're lacking the visual. I think a lot of people's love of that character is the fact that it's Jean Marsh in a cat suit holding a gun. Mm-hmm. And when you take some of those visuals yeah. away uh, on in just audio form, listening to the soundtrack, it seems like kind of a generic companion. You're yeah. right. Uh, the other familiar face is Kevin Stoney, uh, yeah. who plays Ma- Mavic Chen here. Underneath all the... Chinese-ish. Chinese-ish. It's Fu Manchu-ish. It's, it's so Fu Manchu. He's got, like, elongated fingernails. Mm-hmm. And that fussy way he puts the fingernail up, his pinky up to his mouth. Uh, it, it's it's really frustrating, because Mavic Chen could be, like, one of the great villains in Doctor Who history, but it's just buried under all this yellow face, yellow peril. Oh, he's Chinese, so of course he's going to be sneaky and treacherous crap. And I'm like, oh, God, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Not as bad as it could be. Like oh, it could be so. Yeah. Yeah. He he doesn't put on an accent like you say, uh, and there isn't any reference made to his race in the no. televised. No, there version. really isn't. But he's got a last name Chen. I don't know what Mavic is. It's a, it's Eastern European to me. He's <laughs> Slavic. Or, 
But uh, putting that aside for the moment, because we always have to put things aside in yeah. Doctor Who, I, I think he's a terrific villain in the sense that you just hate him. Yes. Oh, that guy. I just I want to see him, him get shot. Yeah. Oh. He's just so slimy. He and makes he's... Sarah kill her brother. <laughs> Ugh. One of my favorite lines in this entire thing is... Um, when uh, Mavicton is talking about his, his his reasons for wanting to control the universe, and he actually says, uh, I shall govern the universe. I just like that he has like, this bureaucratic, megalomaniacal <laughs> aspect to him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, in, you know, in Mavic Chen's mind, it's not like he wants ridiculous power to indulge himself, because he kind of already has that. I mean, it, it, we're not entirely clear what the Office of Guardian does. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, they're kind of, Presented almost like dictator, but it, it's almost more like mm -hmm. uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to like listen to the president. Or he something. can command the Space Security Service. Yeah. So there's a military function he fills. Yeah. And it's clear a solar system seems to be the smallest. There's some space confusion yes. around these points yeah, in but typical he's... Doctor Who manner. And Mavic Chen is kind of jealous of people who have whole galaxies, maybe two galaxies that they're in control of, and he wants. A universe, and yeah, the, the scale <laughs> is sort of bizarre. Yeah, like, like he's got some kind of weird noble motivation of like, you know, the universe just needs a good steady hand. Oh, he wants the power, and it's all about him. Yeah, I, I love how <laughs> he can't say I without saying I, Mavic Chen. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes he adds guardian of the, the solar, solar system. system. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird because they don't position him in some ways as the typical Asian villain. No, I mean, they, they they treat him as as the corrupt politician. I was kind of doing some retcon stuff in my head that like. Well, maybe Maverick Chen is supposed to be an alien. Like, he's not a native of Earth. Well, he's lived a long time because mining yeah. this took 50 years. So, yeah. how old is he supposed to be? Yeah, there's so some, he's got to be like at least 70 to... or 80 years old yeah. if he, he reached some mm -hmm. point of power. Because he talks about his, his expertise in mineralogy, is what <laughs> makes this whole plan work. <laughs> Just like Salamander and his. his... <laughs> Agrarian knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Those dictators could come from anywhere. <laughs> but, gotta be uh, vigilant. <laughs> my my favorite thing about like the first half of the story is just the Council of Evil Aliens. My favorite is that tall black terrorist thing with the yeah, eyes. The, the thing that's like of, made out of cones or something. Yeah, he he disappears for most of the story. He, yeah. you see him in Mission to the Unknown, and he's not there at the council meetings for yeah. the majority of the story. And he pops up again like two or three. There's episodes some weird the reference to like like he couldn't be there, and then uh, the plant guy in the robe had to take his place or something. Yeah, this more yeah. than more than most Doctor Who's. This really called out to me that I should deeply research what happened with the production of it. And I, I resisted doing that because I don't want to get other people's ideas about the stories in my head more than I already do for the purposes of this podcast. I mean, so if sometimes I'm a little unclear on why things are the way they are, it's because I don't do a lot of research before we do um, the episode. But now that we've recorded this, I'm going to be looking into this. Like, why is that big black terrorist thing gone for the whole time? Why does William Hartnell disappear for big chunks of the last several episodes. Because he was William Hartnell. I know. Yeah, I mean, some of it you can write yourself, but... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of large chunks in the story where the Doctor's around and has, like, no lines. Yeah, and some of that can be explained because these actors had to take vacations every now and then, and so they would script them out 
of an episode, so Hartnell could go lie on a beach somewhere. I don't think he does that. <laughs> I can't picture Hartnell on a beach. But for a story this epic, you would expect him to be around a little bit more and do a bit more. At the same time, he's starting to move more toward the heroic central figure um, that we recognize as the Doctor. He does mm -hmm. more direct action, like dressing up as the alien and going into yep. the council meeting and swiping the Terranium core. Yep. Uh, that was that felt like a later Doctor yep. move. And the shtick with the fake Terranium core was really good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, although, whatever that gravity force field nonsense was. That made was. no sense. It was, a, it was a clever little narrative idea that Stephen would be protected and could take one blast from the Dalek gun, but they, they mm -hmm. took no time to try to justify it. <laughs> no, that, that was like a little boy yeah. Yeah, And yeah, then, then like, he gets a gravity happens, field. The, 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 yeah. the Dalek guns won't hurt him. They, oh, they, he's he's shoot encased him once. in a protective plot device. I'm <laughs> okay with that. Uh, but what, one, one thing that did kind of jump out in my mind with the doctor putting on the alien robe and stealing the core, uh, I, you would think that in the year 4000, I security, sense a tirade coming Security on. <laughs> would be a little tighter. <laughs> like, maybe there'd be some kind of... New cameras? Oh, a, a, a door with a lock on it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in one of Lawrence Miles' books. It might be The Adventuress of Henrietta Street, um, but the memory is dim, where somebody talks about the Doctor essentially being encased in a protective plot device. That, that sort of thing. He's... He's got a quantum destabilizing ability, so the that laws of really probability familiar. like warp around him. <laughs> so things that would have gotten you and I just murdered straight out, he's able to. Oh, you know, he just happens to be at the right place to knock out the weird alien, and it happens to have a robe that fits him, mm -hmm. and he can go in and do it. <laughs> Before we move away from this, I yeah. do want to mention one other favorite part of this that I had totally forgotten about was the doctor's magnetic chair that he invents. Yeah. I was just in love with this idea because it is so quintessentially the doctor. Like, you're trapped, you cannot move, but you're going to be very comfortable. <laughs> and I'm really shocked that that is not, that seems like something that would show up in the new series. I can't believe someone hasn't dredged that back up. There's probably some pro story or an audio. I know that I don't think there's an audio with a magnetic chair, but... I want that to come back. <laughs> that was awesome. So we're going to talk about the second half of this story after um, in intervening round. But before we move on to that, I did want to just kind of wrap up my general impressions of the first half of the Daleks Master Plan because it does it has a natural break point right mm -hmm. there at the end of episode six. Um, it's even at this point it's fairly inconsistent, and you know it's a Terry Nation script. So that implies a certain number of things. You know, people are going to be arguing all the time. Right from the very first scene, you've got Mark Corey and his guys just kind of bitching at one another. And Stephen and the Doctor are always arguing, and this and that and the other thing. And Terry always just has to have a jungle planet. Oh, yeah. And if he can, he'll have some killer plants. And if he can't have those, he'll have an invisible monster. <laughs> and so you watch these back-to-back -back and... I don't remember whether he scripted episode four or whether Dennis Spooner scripted that particular one, but that's the episode where Katarina dies and Sarah kills Brett, and it's really tense and interesting, and they wind up getting uh, transported to the planet mm -hmm. on the other side of the universe. It's like, wow, that's a really great episode. There's a lot going on there. Oh, yeah. And then where they're transported is another jungle planet, exactly <laughs> like the one we left, only instead of Varga plants, you have invisible monsters. It's like, come on, Terry... And you would rather, of course, that that episode be lost in episode four exist yeah. because it's so much more interesting. Isn't there actually a line of dialogue like, hey, is this, is this the same planet we were on? 
I think there is. <laughs> like, is this the same set? It's like, it looks <laughs> looks like the same planet. No, oh, I don't think it is, my dear. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up, uh, <laughs> But we should briefly mention Katarina's death, which really stands out it in does. Doctor it's Who. It's startling as hell. Because it happens so suddenly. It's so brutal. It feels like real-world yeah. violence. Mm-hmm. It's, I can't think of anything else like it in Doctor Who. And maybe it's um, that we don't have the visuals, but the audio is really unsettling because they're all screaming mm-hmm. over each other. Mm-hmm. And you imagine this just And there chaos. is there is a clip of her uh, right before she goes out the airlock and she's reaching for the button to do it. And that's just as brutal as it sounds. Yeah. Everybody's screaming and she looks terrified. And it must have been totally a surprise. She was the new companion. They had yep. just picked her up. Literally, they just picked her up in the last episode. Mm-hmm. She didn't even know what the doctor was. She thinks they're going to the underworld. She thinks yeah. it's Zeus or something yeah. like that. Uh, so she's completely at sea for the entire first part of the story. And then she just goes out the airlock. And she sacrifices herself it, to do it. Which makes it like extra terrifying because she's, she's from ancient Greece. She doesn't understand anything. Yeah. Closest thing I can compare it to in, is the death of Tasha Yar in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. Where, where that like happened they, abruptly too. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like let's just completely abruptly and offhandedly kill a character we think is like gonna be around for the shock value. And and Next Generation didn't do a good job of that. No. But uh, here it's it's just really startling and very dark. The only and, unfortunate part of it, I think, is that it ends up happening at the beginning of an episode, so they have to wash their hands of it yep. so quickly. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think they do a good job with what they can, and it's better than how Peter Davison has to deal with Adric's death in Time Flight, which is, <laughs> oh, oh my God, Adric just died. We've been around him for a long time. He was like a brother to us. Let's go on vacation. <laughs> and then it's never mentioned again for the rest of Time Flight. At least Katarina gets a mention in the last the closing minutes of the last episode where Stephen yeah. says, oh, the cost of this, Brett and Katarina yeah. and Sarah. So that, that was a nice touch, and yeah. you don't mm-hmm. see that a lot in Doctor Who. But let's wrap up this round, because I have a special topics Dalek for you guys, and then we're going to come back and talk about the second half of the Dalek's master plan. Okay. So, fellas, it's time for round three our special topics Dalek. Okay. And I have a question for you guys today. So when Brian Schomburg was on as our guest a few weeks ago, he was talking about he found some of the early William Hartnell stuff practically unwatchable because mm-hmm. it's it's paced so differently to a modern program. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, is that true? I mean, I, clearly we don't find Doctor Who of any... <laughs> of any flavor unwatchable. No, really. Um, no. I even voluntarily watched Planet of the Dead more than once. Yeah. <laughs> but um but is it true that they are so much harder to get into than the later stuff? And this is more of a personal opinion. Like for myself, I guess it's true that these early Hartnells are among the earliest television programs that I regularly watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only earlier example I can think of is maybe The Twilight Zone. Mm. I've seen episodes of Honeymooners or I Love Lucy or something, of course, but mm-hmm. stuff that I would watch on a regular basis. Right. However, I'll happily watch films from any era. I'll watch silent films going back to the earliest days of film, and I have no problem with any of that. And I'm comparing the Hartnell stuff with stuff of the same period, like Patrick McGowan's Danger Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the comparison there is pretty good, because I think Danger Man was 1960, 1961, that first season, mm-hmm. and they're half-hour episodes, too. When you compare them with Doctor Who from this period, though, they're just stuffed full of incident. Mm-hmm. They're like 
really compact spy stories told in about the same length of time as a Doctor Who episode, which by comparison are really airy and don't have a whole lot of stuff going right. on. And you compare it to... So Dalek's Master Plan is out there in the world at nearly the same time as A Hard Day's Night from 1964, and there's just no comparison in the type <laughs> of storytelling that's going oh, no. on. I don't have a point necessarily. Those are just kind of my reactions. I was wondering how you guys found these Hartnell-era things compared to other stuff of the period or before. Well, it's a combination of two things. One, budget. <laughs> it's just so much more expensive to do science fiction. You know, maybe like, well, we, we spent how many thousands of pounds to build this jungle set? Well, like, we got to make sure everyone gets a really good look at this jungle set. <laughs> that and, you know, science fiction always being seen as like the lower genre. Oh, the those science fiction weirdo kids, you know, they'll, they'll watch anything with a spaceship in it. We don't have to really do anything more. And Hartnell was just so clearly positioned as a children's show. So I think pacing wise, that's part of the difference between mm -hmm. other contemporary mm -hmm. British TV shows. I will say going back and watching the William Hartnell episodes, I'm much more engaged by the first season and a half, that original crew, mm -hmm. because I feel like it's a different show from the rest of it. And it seems like that pace works really well for me when it's so relational. Yeah. The way uh, Ian and Barbara and Susan and the Doctor, them working out their relationship over a season and a half is really intriguing and I think the writing pops a little bit yeah. more and I think it seems a little more rickety when it, it starts to move more toward the Doctor Who we recognize because William Hartnell can't quite be the action hero that some later Doctors were and when they try to pick up the pace it reminds you of what it's striving for and not reaching more. Yeah and as a children's show like you pointed out there should be some built-in redundancy to the dialogue. If you didn't see last week, well, we got to catch up on it. It's live produced too. It's essentially performed live in front of the camera, so you can't uh, you can't expect everybody to memorize lines the way you could for a feature film, and you can't expect the audience to pay the same level of attention that and you, you would to a, a feature lot of film. Editing. You can't do very and much editing, editing is, at all. Is is the the thing that really increases pace in a visual medium? Yeah, you know, Peter Cushing did 1984 live for broadcast back in the 50s, but. William Hartnell is no Peter Cushing and can't can't memorize that uh, that no. density of lines. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of other British television of that era, but I'm trying to compare just the the overall like video quality. Like it seems like Danger Man and stuff like that was better photographed. It sure looks it. I don't know the technical specs. Are they doing it all in film? Because the, the yeah. segments in Doctor Who, when they switch to film, even in Hartnell's era, all feel more yeah. Oh, yeah. alive. Well, and as Kelvin said, you can edit that stuff much better than you can the three-quarter inch videotape or yeah. whatever they were using. I also think there's something about the pacing maybe matches the star. Like It moves slower with the older performance. Because even as, as soon as Patrick Troughton shows up, I feel like the pacing yeah. gets closer to what we recognize as mm -hmm. a little more modern. It's still very much the 60s, uh, but it, it just seems a livelier production. Yeah, and then there were, well, you know, there was also the thing in that, in that era of sometimes, you know, slower pace was considered like a way of establishing creepiness and, and scariness and dread, mm -hmm. which we've really kind of lost how to do. So I wonder if that was just it. It was just, you know, trying to make it seem creepier and 
They watched a lot of Val Luton movies. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Val Luton y stuff. And, uh, I just invented an adjective Val Luton y. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, everyone, we're back uh, with our second part of our discussion of the Daleks' master plan. And uh, we're going to start off with the rather tremendous tonal change that is Episode 7, known as the Feast of Stephen. This is a madhouse. It's full of Arabs. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that you don't do a lot of research. I looked up a couple things, Pat, and Mm -hmm. one thing that I found really interesting about this is that this was always meant to be a disposable episode and that it was even sold overseas often as an 11 apart serial where this was just completely omitted okay that makes sense it was just because it fell on christmas day this particular episode so they felt they couldn't continue the story because everyone would be drunk and no one would be paying enough attention to it so they didn't want to see a big downer thing on christmas let's take a break from killing companions And another thing, like the the weird bit with the cops at the beginning. Yeah, it was supposed to be Z cars. It was supposed to be yes, yeah, Z cars, uh, which was the big uh, British cop TV show at the time. It was going to be like a crossover with it, but the the Z cars people were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> F you, Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there's a lot of negativity toward this, but I find it just. A- entertaining fluff. I'm really disappointed that it doesn't exist because particularly yeah. the second half, the silent film stuff is all visual. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard to pick up on anything and comic he, going on. And the doctor runs into Charlie Chaplin and of all people, Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There's still some funny lines that translate well even in audio form. Uh, there's the point where they, for some reason, think the doctor is a, a consultant or knows a professor, a professor, yeah. of the professor Arab of studies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. And the director is, is saying, "Well, points to an actor says this. This is an Arabian princess." So the doctor says, "Nonsense! You put some more clothes on, child." <laughs> <laughs> well, Hartnell plays the actual professor too when the professor shows up. Oh, at yeah. the end. was that him? I, I was trying to figure out if that was him or not. Uh, well, I think it was. I mean, it's, the, it's, the reconstruction that I saw by Loose Cannon, it's yeah. clearly him playing the professor. It, it's credited to a different actor, but that could be a pseudonym. Okay. Well, listeners, correct us if we're wrong. It sure but, but, yeah, when I saw, like, the image, it's like, that's clearly William Hartnell just dressed up in a different, with, like, glasses. and a... Which is the obvious joke, of course. You get Bill Hartnell to do that because everybody was mistaking him for the professor. And then he just comes in and it's <laughs> William Hartnell. Of course it looks like him. Uh, the Loose Cannon people did a pretty fun job with this episode. They did a oh, yeah, little did bit of that. animated things. Uh, well, this is what they do. They'll kind of have like cutouts that will run across the, oh, okay. the screen. And in this case, they really went to town. They had that hallway gag that you see a million times, and it shows up in Love and Monsters later mm-hmm. on, where people run off one yep. side, and then they run off the other side being chased by somebody, yep. and then et cetera, et cetera. They also had uh, intertitles. That would explain what the action was. So the yeah, screen silent movie intertitles, silent movie intertitles oh, with cool. uh, with uh, cards explaining what the action is. So yeah, so whoever did the loose cannon reconstruction had a fun time with it. Yeah, it, it's not a unfunny episode. I mean, it's it's like a I think a legitimately entertaining mm-hmm. thing. It just it, it's just lands right in the middle of one of the darker stories in Doctor Who history. Oh yeah, yeah. Without understanding how they thought of TV at the time, yeah, they never thought any of these would ever be seen again. Right. This was one hundred percent disposable entertainment in the moment right um and so without that understanding of it it seems like just absolute 
ridiculousness to put this in the center. It's, it's like it was being written planet. drunk or something. Yeah. Like, whoa, let's, let's have him go to the silent movie and do wacky stuff. Yeah, in the middle of this, it has like one of the first Doctor's most iconic lines that are often quoted when he says, you know, I am a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot. So it mm-hmm. still has that sort of schizophrenic nature that all of the Daleks' master plan does. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad, you know, it exists in whatever form it does. It's okay. it's the funniest Doctor Who had been up to that point, except for the Romans, which yeah, is a, a, a funny one. But it, its humor works a lot better than the dumb stuff in the middle of the chase. And the big uh, breaking the fourth wall at the end where mm-hmm. William Hartnell wishes the viewers happy Christmas. <laughs> oh, how charming. Mm-hmm. But then which it, was apparently kind of a tradition in British television at the time. Yeah. But the good, good times can't last forever. No. Nope. Pretty soon you're... Being chased by Daleks and getting set up by the meddling monk on a volcano planet. <laughs> by the way, episode eight, my volcano stock footage is back. <laughs> yes. I don't know whether it was in the original serial, but Loose Cannon used the same volcano stock footage that showed up in The Enemy of the World and Inferno. Oh. And by, well, since we're on the topic, since I'm on the topic, in the Time Destructor going off at the end of episode 12, the reconstruction used the rushing clouds from the opening sequence of The Prisoner. <laughs> yes. That I think oh, is also in the power of Kroll. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stock footage fiesta. Mm. I think this is the portion of the Daleks Master Plan that has the great line, childish line from Mavic Chin. It came from Uranus. <laughs> I know it did! <laughs> And, they, and he is, like, going for an Oscar when he delivers that line, too. You, you can't say it's that so, line innocently. You know, you know, if you write science fiction, you almost have to, like, make some kind of blanket editorial statement. Like, okay, it's the future. We've colonized the whole solar system. But seriously, no one goes to Uranus. <laughs> Stay away from Uranus. Stay away from Uranus. <laughs> Nothing happens. Nothing happens there. We're plugging up Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen enough of your ears. Uh, We're going to just wipe out. <laughs> I wasn't going to do this. Kelly Hatley, everyone. I seriously wasn't going to do this. Oh, you always were going to do this. It's, There's no possible timeline in which the, you weren't going to do this. It's the cheese of the mousetrap. <laughs> I just have to grab it. Anyway, moving on from Uranus. <laughs> all right. Get it all out, children. Do you need to go walk around the block? <laughs> all right. God. I do have a serious question. Yes. Um, how did they know, uh, the, the, the groups that did these reconstructions, how did they know what the episodes looked like? Uh, they have the shooting scripts. Those all still exist. So they are just going by scripts, script interpretations. And, yeah. I mean, are there any of them that were around that are old enough to have maybe seen it when they were kids? Well, well, possibly, probably. And I don't know who they are really who do this, but my understanding is that they go off production stills uh, Mm -hmm. because certain of the adventures have quite a few of those that are still existent. Mm -hmm. So you can see what the set design looks like. And and then all of the shooting scripts are still out there, uh, sometimes in multiple drafts. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, a lot of Doctor Who, you just guess at. Or it's a bunch of people sitting around talking or standing around in a jungle talking. <laughs> we, we've seen this bit before. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like once Dennis Spooner steps in as the script writer that things get a little sharper, a little wittier at least. There are a lot of really funny exchanges, uh, and I think intentionally mm-hmm. funny, unlike Uranus. 
that it's actually meant. I love the sparring match between uh, Mavic, Chen, and the Daleks once mm-hmm. they yeah. discover that the Doctor and the crew has stolen one of the Dalek saucers. And Mavic Chen is rubbing it into the Dalek. The Dalek's getting really angry. And I don't know if it's an actual like acting flub, but the Dalek keeps trying to say something and keeps getting interrupted in that scene, which is really <laughs> funny where he, the Dalek is like, it's not an emergency. It's not. Everything's cool. Don't be a dick, Mavic Chen. <laughs> hey, Dalek. Crazy Dalek. Stay loose and cool. <laughs> I, we should say that uh, the entire 13 episodes uh, was directed by Douglas Camfield, who's yeah. one of Doctor Who's best directors. And so even as the script is implausible or repetitive or too Terry Nation-y, he mm-hmm. manages to keep things pretty pacey. Yeah, the few existing episodes are really nice. We're jumping back to the first group of six, but I love the scene in which Mavic Chen is talking to, I forget the alien's name, Zephon, and he ends up behind these weird space bars and is talking to him like he's got him imprisoned. And it's just it's just a nice bit of direction. And There's a great arty shot in episode 10 when they're in ancient Egypt. There's a shot of the Egyptian sun that then dissolves into a gleam on the casing of a Dalek. Mm -hmm. And they they pull out and you see the Dalek there. I'm like, I've not seen that in any Hartnell era thing. That's really quite a show-offy shot and done very well. And is this the first time that a Dalek's vision was impaired? He doesn't say vision is impaired, but um, that's how they steal the Dalek saucer, Stephen. They, like, thwack him in the eye Well, they put put mud mud on it. Yeah. The The doctor puts it splat. Isn't there, like, another scene where, like, the doctor says, like, take my cane and just hit him in the eye stalk Yeah, he does, he does say that. Yeah. This <laughs> is from an era in which the Daleks were not the unstoppable force that we yeah. know him from the new series. Yeah, there's this no Dalekanian chasing here. In which Egyptians put rocks around the Dalek. <laughs> and it literally goes, hey, hey. help! Egyptians with rocks! Help! Because, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, when I saw, like, the confrontation of, like, the Egyptian soldiers and the Daleks, and I'm like... This is like the most one-sided battle I would I could mm-hmm. ever imagine. Well, they all get killed. Which, yeah, uh, which is what would happen. Yeah, they do manage to enrock one of the Daleks, <laughs> but I don't know if he gets out or. I it's not, it's watching, not established what happens. I remember watching the enrocking scene. And I'm like, oh come on! Point <laughs> 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 another phrase. <laughs> You're you're on another episode of Ancient Egyptian Punk. (laughs) We're going to goof around with these Daleks. Dude got in rocked. (laughs) So the monk, you guys, do we like the monk? I think he's great. I I love this guy. I love the monk. I've always loved the monk. I feel weird that he's in this particular story. Yeah, he has no business being here, except that it does make the whole thing, I think, more refreshing to me. Like, oh, yeah. now we're after another uh, jungle planet. Uh, <laughs> then it's like, oh, so the monk is here. Nobody expected that. Yeah, nobody expects the monk. <laughs> it also creates a nice, clever narrative twist when the doctor and the crew think they're being chased by the monk, yep. but they're also being chased by the Daleks. And that moment, that aha moment when they realize if the monk's here and there's still another time shift following us, it's the Daleks. So that's, yep. a, that's, that's a nice moment. It even has a plot function in that uh, the doctor steals the dimensional navigation mm-hmm. unit out of the monk's TARDIS, and that's what allows him to get back to Kemble in the first place, because, of course, he can't control the TARDIS at all at this period. Yeah. I like 
the meddling monks so much that I almost end up siding with him. I almost feel like the first doctor is just being a total dink. He, I mean, is, he, he, he is just so messing with the meddling monk in this and so enjoying <laughs> it's, it. It's like a, you know, you know, sort of a proto-doctor master relationship where it's like schoolboy rivals yeah. or something. But he yeah. so effortlessly outplays the monk in mm-hmm. this particular series of incidents that you feel a little sorry for. He's really the Mr. Mixoplick of the yeah. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the monk. I just, and uh, admittedly the Dalek's master plan is a long enough story that it's going to have like sub-stories in it and it can't be as as unrelentingly grim as Katarina's death and Sarah Kingdom's death, you know, sandwiching it like that. But yeah. it still feels kind of weird to me to have this kind of odd chase hijinks in ancient Egypt just stuck in the middle of the story for some reason. Yeah. But I love the monk. I do love I, the monk. I, I, do. I wish they I wish the monk had been used more. I do too. And my little bit of headcanon, because he reminded me so much of Patrick Troughton, Peter Butterfield's performance. Mm-hmm. He's so Patrick Troughton he this. My my headcanon is that the first doctor unconsciously modeled his first regeneration on the monk. That's pretty cool. I like that one. They're very similar physical types. Mm-hmm. And their energy levels and all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well canoned. Thanks. <laughs> so, but then things get uh, grimmer after oh. that. In fact, this winds up being a fairly tragic, yeah. tragic story. It's an incredibly tragic story. You know, Sarah dies for no good reason, like Adric will later on. Yeah. Um, she goes back to help the doctor, who explicitly said don't, mm-hmm. and uh, she doesn't do anything, and she dies. Ouch. Grimly. She is just yeah. reduced to your flesh just peels away she ages away to dust, dust. yeah we're, awful we're Ugh. told the daleks are awful but i think this is the first point in doctor who history at the end there uh when the doctor and steven are talking about all the people who died where you really feel like yeah the daleks suck yeah <laughs> yeah it, it it is it's honestly one of the most tragic doctor who stories i think ever yeah, and, and it has Bing Crosby dressed as a clown. And it has Bing Crosby dressed as a clown. It's very almost had a pie fight, which we'll yeah. get to in the next round. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, it. Under no circumstances should this have worked. Mm-hmm. The longest Doctor Who story they've attempted by far mm-hmm. up to this point, uh, with, as I understand it, Terry Nation kind of bowing out halfway through and mm-hmm. leaving half-finished nonsense for Dennis Spooner to clean up. William Hartnell being exhausted and difficult to work with and not there for big chunks of it. Mm-hmm. A Christmas episode, <laughs> hastily written and stuck in the middle of it. Let's put in the meddling monk for some reason. Uh, but against all odds, it succeeds much better than you would think it would. And part of the fun is how goofy it can get and then how it can swing into something so dark. You're, you're always surprised, good, bad, or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I largely enjoyed it, but the wild-ass tonal shifts do not sit as well with me. Sure. I would love to see this in its entirety. And and, and isn't this like the, probably the most likely never to be recovered in its entirety? Certainly the Feast of Stephen episode will never be found because I don't think it was ever reproduced, as you said, for any kind of distribution beyond that day. Like didn't like Australia just flat out not buy this story uh, because they thought it was too dark. So like it didn't, it didn't get nearly the overseas sales that other Doctor Who stories did? I think that's true. Yeah. Listeners, you let us know. Or I could go on Wikipedia after this. <laughs> but that's all that's I do. <laughs> final thoughts? Uh, actually, we're, it's not going to be final thoughts, because we're going to have one more round about yeah. this story. But, uh, Kelvin, your final thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, if you if you get a hold of the of the loose cannon uh, restoration, I think it's uh, interesting to watch in incremental bits. Uh, don't try to marathon the thing. No, I did one a night. Yeah, uh, you know, watch it like one a night for you know twelve nights or so, and I think I think you'll be reasonably entertained. But just you know, be prepared. It has like one of the saddest endings of a Doctor Who story, like ever. But yeah. yeah, no, it's 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 a real interesting. Curio isn't the right word for something this big, <laughs> but artifact of, of of the early era. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I can't <clears throat> add much more to what Calvin said. I think it's well worth uh, slogging through reconstructions or just listening to audio like I did. I actually think a lot of it is well represented by the audio with some linking narration. Uh, the only thing I would add, um, I want to say how good I think the regulars are in this. It reminded me how much I love Steven. I think Peter Purvis is so good. He's mm -hmm. a pretty generic good guy action character, but he just brings just a lot of humanity and a yeah, lot of sympathy to the role, and yeah. I think he's really an underrated companion. Another really one of those him. rare moments in Doctor Who history where he just has one male companion. And he will for the whole of the next episode, the massacre. Yeah, because they, they don't run into Dodo until like the very end of that. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about that one at some point, too. Okay, so for our final round, you guys, uh, we're going to talk about the novelization of the Daleks' master plan. Ah. Now, Josh and I have both just read this. Kelvin, you did not, correct? I, I did not read this. I do know, however, it was split into two books. It was. It was too long for the normal target novelization. There's a, there's a page count. I don't know exactly yeah. what it is, but it was published in two parts. Uh, part one, Mission to the Unknown, and part two, The Mutation of Time. They're both by John Peel. Not the disc jockey. Yeah. I, for many years, I thought he was the disc jockey. <laughs> uh, they came out in 1989, and they were some of the last of the Target novelizations to be published. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it took so long to get around to it, but that's what it is. It's an interesting adaptation. The most important thing to know about it is that it is just, for the most part, for the most part, and I'll stress that, a very, very straightforward telling of the story. There aren't any narrative hijinks like having Homer narrate the story <laughs> like the novelization of The Myth Makers does. It's written explicitly for people who know Doctor Who well and just want to experience this story that doesn't exist. Uh, there's no introduction to the Doctor or how the TARDIS works. There's not even a physical description of the Daleks to establish no. what they look like to the reader. Every Peel is assuming that the reader already knows all of that. Mm -hmm. There are, especially in the first book, it's very, very close to what you see uh, in the reconstructions or in the audios. There's a couple minor inexplicable changes, like the Visions are seven feet tall, not eight feet tall, and there's no teleportation of mice to mm -hmm. the planet. There's a lot of just little details like that. There are a lot of dialogue additions. Yep. Uh, a few weird subtractions in that first book. In the actual televised story, which I love, William Hartnell calls uh, the one planet this, this pimple of a planet. Mm. And he changed it to an uncharacteristic hellhole of a planet in the book. So right. it's odd choices that must have just somehow, for some reason, rankled John Peel. Yeah, and it, some of it may, and I'm not 100% on this, may be holdovers from Terry Nation's original script. Oh, yes. So, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, the Feast of Stephen episode at the beginning of book two ends with a pie fight. The yeah. Doctor invents the pie fight. <laughs> uh, yes. which, I love that. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty funny. And it was apparently something that 
Terry wrote in his first draft of the script, but it just wound up not getting filmed for some reason. So here, Peel... Headlights are expensive to film. Yeah, well... And There's they... a lot of cleanup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see any number of reasons why you wouldn't want to have William Hartnell in a pie fight. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no such restrictions on uh, John Peel writing it yeah. into the book, and that's exactly what he does. He makes one major change to the storyline by having six months go by between books one mm-hmm. and two. Uh, his stated reason for this is to enable future writers to develop mm-hmm. original stories involving Sarah Kingdom, which I thought, oh, that's, that's considerate. Yeah, so our fan fiction, Kelvin, when we get around to writing it, yeah. our Stephen and Sarah fan fiction, it has a nice little place where it uh, where it can go. There's a surprisingly large numbers uh, of, of like audios and things where Sarah Kingdom shows up via some weird alternate yeah. time thingy or yes, whatever. That's a, probably a whole other podcast. But yeah, there's a yeah. whole trilogy of big finish Sarah Kingdom audios that find a way to sort of rebirth her consciousness in a different form and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, what so, the yeah. hell? Gene Marsh is still around. Yeah, she's... Up for it. Great actress. Peel seems to think so too. There's a little bit of uh, leering at the female characters in this. Brett can't put his tongue back in his mouth over a Katarina. Katarina, And and it's very, it's a little ugly because he's like, "Uh, too bad she's so dumb. (laughs) Man, she's cute, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and then later on, Sarah's cat suit shows off her perfect figure. That sort of thing. Yeah, I, 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 I. I, I have no trouble. He can't even seeing, speak. He's imagining. I have no trouble suit. seeing, you know, young boys getting very fixated on Sarah Kingdom. Let me let me put it back. Oh, she's here. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, overall, I wouldn't call the book uh, well written exactly, but it's it's readable it's enough. Like, yeah, it's not as breezy as a Terrence Dix mm-hmm. novelization, but it's not as dense as Virgin or or BBC books would get. So I enjoyed it. Um, he, he dials up Mavic Chen's megalomania to a fun degree. Uh, he really does seem to have fun with the Mavic Chen character. Chen actually has a plan to double-cross the Daleks in the book, which is not visible in the televised version at all. Sort of implied by his general trustworthiness. nature, yes. Yeah, he's got his own fleet. He's going to, when they're busy invading the Earth, he's going to invade Kendall. And, mm-hmm. and he's got an aide-de-camp um, who doesn't appear in the televised version. He does, just in one scene, and then he's dropped. Oh, oh, the bald guy. oh yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. He does. He is there and there. Yeah, but he's actually a yeah. more developed character. In so the much so that they go back to sort of have a coda with him being arrested at yeah. the very end it's of the, the book. It, it justifies Mark Corey's recording. Mm-hmm. They use Mark Corey's recording, which implicates Mavic Chen and this dude yeah. specifically by name. Mm-hmm. So when the space security service uh, hear it, they come in and they arrest him, and that's uh, the final or, or nearly yeah. final scene. We arrest you, Mavic Chen, and we arrest you, bald guy. <laughs> <laughs> What's your face? Right. Uh, there's some fun retconning. Uh, it is, Peel establishes that the Daleks use terranium to power their time machine. And that's why they don't have a fleet of time machines, because it took them a century to mine the terranium to get the mm-hmm. enough to use the time machine in the chase. Mm-hmm. And that's why they only have one here. Uh, there's also a reference to T-Mat technology. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a fun Fourth Doctor thing that'll yep. pop up every now and then. Don't they sneak a reference to the Draconians in? Yep, too? they talk about the Draconian Empire. Yep. I forget the context, but it's there. There, there's a weird uh, section at the beginning of book two where he really starts to embroider things because uh, he invents a few th- scenes completely uh, because of the six-month gap where mm-hmm. Stephen and Sarah exist. Yeah, there's a great scene. In- he explains to Sarah that the reason he doesn't go out of his way to fix the TARDIS controls 
is so that he's not tempted to keep searching for happy endings. Are you going to read that? That's exactly what I wanted to read because this was written in the late 80s and it, it reads as this sort of canonical explanation for why the Doctor has so drastically changed in the new series. It seemed really ahead of its time. <laughs> uh, and this is just totally out of John Peel's head in the late 80s. He has William Hartnell saying... It is so tempting, you know. I often wonder what became of the people that I've met, especially those who traveled with me at one time or another. My granddaughter Susan, I left her to be married on the earth in the 21st century. I often wonder what she made of her life. Was I right in what I did when I left her? Hmm. Or Ian and Barbara, oh, they are a troublesome pair, you know, when we first met. They burst into my ship and forced me to carry them off, but... Over time, we grew closer, and I was sad to see them go. I like to imagine that they got home and married and raised lots of noisy children. It would be terribly tempting to just drop in if I had that power. Or he broke off abruptly, returning to the present. You see, he said, somewhat gruffly, if I could control the TARDIS, I'd be forever poking my old nose into the affairs of others best left alone to live their own lives. And, then and he, that's, the, that's the new series. Yes, it is. <laughs> He even goes on to quote Peter Beagle, the, <laughs> the author of The Last Unicorn. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, the quote is, The doctor smiled somewhat sadly. If an old man may be permitted to quote, I'll give you a little Peter Beagle. <laughs> there are no happy endings for nothing ever ends. I can't see that line coming out of William Hartnell's mm -hmm. mouth, but a little self-indulgence on John Peel's part. But I love it. I it's, it's, it was great. A really, it, it's a great description of the classic series Doctor's emotional approach to relationships <laughs> yeah. in time travel. And the final thing I'll say about this book, the killer line from the pie fight in <laughs> The Feast of Stephen is pies, tarts, and flans flew furiously. <laughs> so this is the only instance I know of, gentlemen, of the word flan being used in Doctor Who. If I'm incorrect, listeners, please write in. <laughs> Well, that's our show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Join us next time when we will be talking about Nicholas Courtney's very first appearance as not the Brigadier, but mm -hmm. Colonel Lethbridge Stewart in The Web of Fear with Patrick Troughton. Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Kelvin. And I'm Pat. And we're saying, Get off my world! Stock footage of Uranus. <laughs> Can you edit in little, like, rim shots every time you see Uranus? Let's move away from Uranus. <laughs> you won't really want rim, rim shot. Uranus. Oh, yeah, there's that. That is a thing. <laughs>